Introducing Lewis Scott and Films of 1991. Hello and welcome back to Films of 1991, episode 10. And today we're going to be doing The Butcher's Wife. Now, if you listen to the last episode, which if you haven't, don't worry about it. You know, you can listen to whatever episode you want. You don't have to listen to it in order or whatever. But anyway, uh, I, at the end of the last episode, um, King of New York, I was talking about, I mentioned that I was going to do The Butcher's Wife today and that it's actually a film that I've long pegged for wanting to do. Uh, ever since I thought of doing this in the first instance many moons ago. And because, one, the title is wacky. <laughs> um, two, the poster image, um, I, you know, I'm like, well, so what's it about? Because there ain't no meat on show. There ain't no butchers, knives or whatever. Um, and, oh, yeah, so, and also like the quintessential 90s film. I'll get into actually that specific subject later on. The details, let's go through them. So, The Butcher's Wife, directed by Terry Hughes. Um, the cast is... Now, normally I do cast includes because there's so many different parts to that cast. But with this, actually, it's quite a tight-knit cast. So this is more or less all of them. So, uh, Demi Moore, Jeff Daniels, Mary Steenburgen, George Duzunza, Duzunza, I hope I say that right. My bad. Francis McDormand. Margaret Collin, Max Perlich, Miriam Margulies, Helen Hampt, Louise Avalos, Elizabeth Lawrence. In the brief synopsis, so I slightly changed the synopsis that I, the two synopsis that I was reading online, I slightly changed it to leave a little bit more to the imagination. Uh, so a clairvoyant impulsively marries a butcher, moves to NYC, New York City, and has an impact on all, on all who she meets, changing their lives and hers. Because there was bits that were in the previous other synopsis that I read that I was like, oh, it gives a bit too much away. Um, although when I talk about this film, it's like, it's uh, it's hard not to give everything away when you talk about it. Um, so, for a film that you could say is pretty much by the book, uh, I actually really enjoyed the film. Uh, is it is what I finally believe to be the beginning of quintessential nineties era rom coms. And I've just realised that this is actually our first rom com, romantic comedy, if you want the full. Um, and it's our actual second Demi Moore feature, with a third down the road, and. This is our first major award film of, <laughs> yeah, first film award nomination for a Razzie. Yes, that's right. Oh, we're not talking Oscars, not talking BAFTAs, Golden Globes, Emmys, Tonys, Olivier's. <laughs> I know. Oh, but they're not technically film awards. Well, you know, I'm just playing. No, a Razzie. Now, if you don't know what a Razzie is, it's uh, the Golden Raspberry Awards. And it's a play on the idea of the raspberry sound, blowing a raspberry, which is always a daft thing. Because I, don't, that's another, that also that's enough for another podcast. Where does that come from? Because never have I eaten or eaten, sorry, 
a raspberry and then went when well, I've eaten it. Um, so I don't know where it comes from. But anyway, it's a, basically it's a award started in the late 70s, I want to say. Uh, and it was also it was basically about awarding those who are terrible. <laughs> you know, what was the worst film, worst actor, uh, worst... Um, it's got a few different categories. So there's yeah, worst supporting actor, and then there's also I think worst storyline, worst script, I think. Oh, worst new star as well. And so yeah. Um but before getting into why that was all whatever, let's delve into this film a little bit more before I get into the why it was nominated for Raspberry. And also I'm gonna talk a little bit because I have to heart back to a previous film that I reviewed that actually has um, an attachment to the Raspberry, the Razzies, sorry. So this is a sweet film. It has a charm about it that every cast member plays their part in perfectly. I mean, as I mentioned, what a stat cast. Um, I, mean, I mean, that is full of talent, I will say. With and which with each line, part, moment of silence, nothing is out of place. Uh, they, each member of their cast knows what they're there to do and does it to a fantastic standard. Uh, there is a little asterisk onto that, I will say, which again, I'll get to at a later stage. So the thing with rom-coms is a lot of the time you've seen it all before. Will they, won't they, eventually leads to a happy ending. However, that being said, sometimes, despite the, that cake that you always are making with the same ingredients and, turn, and it turns out the same way every time, it's still a delicious cake. You still enjoy it. It's, um, it's almost like, a, it's like an old friend that you see. It's like, I know, I've known this person pretty much all my life, and yet I still have the greatest time with them. You know, it's simple, simple maths. And that is the case with this, with this here film. You know, add a little bit of a magical element, uh, a heavy through line of music, and the notion that everyone, everyone can have a happy ending. You know, because, you know, it's funny, in some instances with rom-coms, you'll find that the main protagonist or nists, they, uh, you know, they get together in the end and have happy days, whatever. And then, like, the best friend, you know, they kind of hint. Maybe they have a happy ending. Sometimes it's just not at all. Uh, and then there's other rom-coms where, like, there's a technically a villain. In inverted commas, there's a villain. And they seem to have a happy ending or they get their comeuppance. You know, it's... I, I don't really remember a film where everyone had a happy ending. Like, Literally everyone has some sort of happy ending. And that might be a bit schmaltzy for some. But sometimes a bit of schmaltz is not a bad thing. I mean, at the end of the day, you enjoy what you enjoy. Is that, and that is exactly what happened here. So let's get back into the details now and some of the stuff that I mentioned previously getting back into. So let's start with Demi Moore. Star of the show. Now, she was the one that was nominated for being worst actress for, uh, for Razzie, for The Butcher's Wife, 
And for the fir- third film of 91, Nothing But Trouble, uh, which, having read a little bit about, that is going to be a trip. We're not going to do it in the immediate uh, future, but down the line, I am definitely going to, well, obviously, I'll have to re- watch and review that film, but that might be, I can already tell, I think that might be actually a two-parter, two long parts, because I, it's funny, I actually came across this film reading about by chance. I actually think it was when I was doing um, our previous Demi Moore film, and I literally, all the names of every film, Mortal Thoughts, uh, which was episode four. Um, I think when I was looking up Demi Moore then, I read about this nothing but trouble. Um, yeah, I'm not going to spoil any of that, what that's probably going to be like, but... Whew. But anyway, yeah, so she was nominated for that. And I just wanted to say, mention quickly about the Razzies. So in the first ever episode, apart from the introduction episode, but our first ever review of Stone Cold with um, the boss, Brian Bosworth. When I was reviewing the film, this did not come up. And it's interesting it came up, but it came up here because obviously it's the same year. But um, under the worst new star award, uh, the boss was nominated for that, for Stone Cold. And I thought that was really Shan. I thought, and if you don't understand what Shan is, like, um, God, how do you explain Shan? <laughs> if you don't know the word. Uh, like, I guess it's like shame. It's like, that's a shame. That's a real shame. Like, um, if someone does a really hard, or it's, sometimes it gets used if, um, if someone tells a really harsh joke about someone. You're like, oh, that's Shan, man. You should just leave him alone, you know, or leave them alone. That's really Shan. You know, you didn't need to do that. I guess, I, hopefully that explains. But anyway, I thought that was a real shame. Let me put that. Because I thought that the boss did, for look, it's his first film. I'm sorry, he does have some personality. He has some charisma about him. You just look at the trailer for that. And the advertising campaign they did for that. He comes across excellently. And then the film, he you know, it get, it, the part he's given is an action part. I, I think I was... I, I thought... Yeah. Anyway, he didn't win it, though. Um, he lost out to... Oh, yeah, come on. we got to say. He lost out to Vanilla Ice. That's right. Uh, Vanilla Ice. Because also in 91 was the film Cool as Ice. Oh, my God. I, I'm telling you. We're going to have some absolute, <laughs> absolute doozies down the line. Oh, and what I'm trying to not do, though, is pack it all in, like, the first however many films that we do here. Because <laughs> so, I want to save some for further down the line, like, well down the line. Like, in the hundreds, or maybe, well, if I ever get to the thousands. But anyway, back to the matter at hand. Now, I get why um, Demi Moore, I don't, well, for this film, anyway, like I said, she was nominated for two films. She wasn't the only one nominated for two films, I wanted to point out as well. So, you know, there were others there. Anywho, um, so yeah, I, I get why, because it's a shame. All of this is a real shame, but her character is supposed to be from North Carolina, sorry. And, well, it's an accent, you know, 
even you know she's she's doing her best. That's all you can say. So, but the thing is, as a director or even as a production crew, or even as an actor, it's like the choice you have is like either you go with you go with it, which they did. You let Demi be Demi, as in you just say, "Hey, don't do the accent." You know, you can be from North Carolina and not have the accent. We'll just, you know, we'll figure something out, or we'll just be like, "You're from some distant land." Because the way they play, portray North Carolina, Carolina, God, my tongue finds it so hard to say that word. The way they portray it is like a mystical land. Also, because it's specifically on. Actually, I'm going to get on locations later on, so I'll save that. But they, you know, the way they portray it is kind of mystical. So you could even have removed exactly where she's from geographically, or you dub it, which has been done in other instances, plenty of times. Um. For the one of the most famous ones is James Bond, uh, Sean Connery, and Thunderball. It was it Sean Connery who's dubbed? God, can you imagine that? It would be a riot if he got dubbed over. Uh, no, it was the villain. He, I can't remember the actor's name, but he was Greek, if I remember rightly. And they dubbed over the top of him because after they filmed and they looked back at the film, and apparently the way, obviously, because English wasn't his first language. They deemed that they had to double for him for people to sign, which obviously is absolute bullcrap. I think it adds something when, like, I would have, I, I, I'm going off on a sidetrack here about Thunderball, which actually, growing up, was one of my favourite James Bond films. I know a lot of people probably disagree with that, but there was something about it. Uh, but anyway, like, what if you just let the guy speak Greek? Because that's my, that's, I have a major issue with films and TV where, Everyone talks English in like a place where there's plenty of other languages they could have spoke, but no, nope, has to be English, mate. Uh, excuse me, no. Do you know what I mean like no? Let them let, them, let that man be who he wants to be. Let him speak Greek and that adds something to it. Adds a bit more of well, he gets to fully be himself rather than trying to compensate if it's not his first language and he doesn't really, and he knows enough, but not a lot. And especially if you, you're being hampered. That's what I mean. You're being hampered of your artistic ability by, you know, like tying one arm behind his back, so to speak. Anyway, that's besides the point. But what I'm trying to say is like, that was one, one of the options. Or, as I guess, depending on, I would have been, I might read more about, actually there wasn't a lot of information about this film. Actually, think about it because the other option would have been, or you could just recast with someone else. And I've thought initially, as I'm doing this, I was thinking you should recast it. You recast the Demi Moore with someone from North Carolina. But really, you could have cast anyone if they can nail a North Carolina accent. I also want to point out something else about Demi Moore, is that. Demi Moore was part of the Brat Pack, so she was known. But then she got she got thrown into superstardom in 1990. That's right, the year previous to 91. Because she obviously starred opposite the man, the myth, the legend, Patrick Swayze, in Ghost. Which was a humongous film. A massive film. Still to this day, it's still a massive film. And so the very next year... It's funny, because Patrick Swayze goes on to do that, that's right, and again, we're going to save that for download, because plenty of people have reviewed that and waxed lyrical about Point Break. And then Demi Moore went and did 
Now, I didn't look at the order of releases of which came first. But she obviously did Mortal Thoughts, which we talked about, and which she's excellent. And interestingly enough, talking of accents, New Jersey accent is excellent in that. Like, having watched lots of Sopranos um, and, you know, Kevin Smith films, because obviously a lot of his films initially were set in New Jersey, you know, you get used to, and watching The Wire, because there's folk, there's, no, no, it's not set in New Jersey, anywhere near New Jersey. My bad. Anyway, what, having watched a lot of media, I get a New Jersey accent. And I thought her New Jersey accent was excellent. Oh, everyone's New Jersey accent, Mortal Thoughts, is excellent. So it's not like she can never do an accent. That's not the thing. It's just, I guess for some people, there's some accents you can't do. Like, I used to be do a crack of a Australian accent, can't do that anymore. Used to do, I used to do, be able to do a lot of accents, and now they've kind of just all melded into either me doing a posh English accent or an Irish accent, or maybe some American accents. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a choice. So I get that that was, you know, probably one of the main reasons why she was also nominated for this, for a Razzie. But, you know, I'm not going to dump hate on Demi because of that. You know, not at all. She, you know, she does an admiral job trying to carry that accent. It's not the worst accent I've heard. I've heard plenty awful ones. Specifically of people trying to do a Scottish accent. And I get why they made her character be from somewhere else. Because it's supposed to highlight this fish out of water nature when she moves to NYC. Um, <laughs> excuse me. And my... Because, like, okay, I could sort of get, back, get past the accent because, you know, she's trying, right? And I've seen her doing New Jersey action, she nails it. And she's, do, she's used it with the material she's got, she's doing a, a pretty good job. But my actual issue with Demi Moore's character is the hair. Now, this might sound daft, but in every other film I've seen Demi Moore in, she has had dark hair, which I presume is her natural hair colour. However, in this, she has curly blonde hair and she has blonde eyebrows. So, with the hair, I don't know. I'm guessing that was a wig. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. The eyebrows, on the other hand, I don't know how uh, good hair and makeup was in 91. Um, so, either they dyed her eyebrows or they stuck false ones on top. The wonders of hair and makeup is extraordinary with what they can do. Now, I get that when you're talking about, you know, having, you know, Carolina's, okay, look, I'm an outsider, so I'm going to try and do my best here. But from what I can gather, it's full of sun, arable land, you know, wispy winds. So maybe you make your hair curly and maybe you'd more likely be blonde. I think that's actually bullcrap what I just said there. Strike that from the record. <laughs> But I guess, again, they're trying to make her look ethereal, I get, but I don't know. She looks completely washed out to me. It kind of throws you, um, coupled with that accent, it is a bit of a clumsy choice for that being the central focal point. I'll be interested to know what the, who were making the choices there. 
And, you know, speaking of focal points, we'll get to the supporting cast. But I actually just want to jump in here because I want to talk a little bit about the director. So the director, Terry Hughes, cracking name, by the way, um, this is wild. So he's had a long, long career stemming from, I think, uh, almost like the late 60s, early 70s. I'm actually just going to look him up now. You might hear me clap him. Let's see. Yep, Terry Hughes, there he is. So he's British, actually. So there you go. I didn't realize that. So let's see. Let's see his earliest credit. Is that under director? Oh, sorry, my computer's freezing up. Uh, 78 credits as a director. Wow. 1963 was his earliest credit on a BBC documentary show. So basically, he has worked since 63 up until, uh, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, up until last year. So, this is what's wild. So this, this film, this full feature film, starring Demi Moore, Jeff Daniels, Mary Steenburgen, you know, Francis McDormand, you know, people who are, you know, very well-respected actors. This was his first feature film. His first, okay? I get and also, I just want to point out that the film wasn't nominated for a Razzie, it was just Demi Moore. So, again, like I said, though, I think it was a bit of a shame that they gave Demi Moore that nomination. It's like, what's she supposed to do? You know, she's earning a paycheck. She's not going to turn around and be like, actually, I don't want the job because I can't do this accent. No, she's going to be like, okay, I'll do my best. But, on top of that being his first feature film, it was his only feature film. Now, he's had TV movies, don't get me wrong, he's had TV movies, whatever, before you rile around in your chair. But still, this is his only ever, his one and only film to be released in the cinema, on a screen, for people to walk into and watch. I think that's crazy, I think that's mad. Like, you know, because, you know, he did loads of TV. That was it. This has been his thing. He done... There was one statistic that I really wanted to talk about, and I'm trying to find it now. It's to do with a very well-loved show that constantly gets repeated. I'm going too far back. Let's see. Come on. Where are you? Ah, The Golden Girls. He directed for five... He directed episodes of that for five years. 108 episodes. 108 And so he finished that in 1990. He did three. He did one. He did a pilot of one show, two episodes of another show, which was a pilot. And then he did Butcher's Wife. And then right after that, he goes back to TV. And then from then on, he's back with TV. And it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. It's, it's so fascinating. People's careers and how they all fall into place and work out. Again, I think this is a film I really want to do a proper deep dive in the background of it because I'm just fascinated by the fact that he went, did this film, and then that was it. You know, like I say, he did TV movies, so you know, but I guess that's a, it's a very different sort of medium. Um, but yeah, so there you go. And oh, is that the? 
Hold on. I just think I figured something out. Yeah, oh my god. Okay, so his latest credit. <laughs> his latest credit is Man with a Plan, which if you don't know is um, Matt LeBlanc's TV show, um, which is very much in the mold of an old school Tim Allen sitcom. Actually, no. I'll rephrase that because um, what was Tim Allen's show again? Home Improvement. That's a cracking show. Well, let me rephrase that. Matt LeBlanc's show is like a new school Tim Allen sitcom. Yeah. If you know, you know. It's not very good. Um, but there you go. You, you know, you have a job. You do your job. You earn your paycheck. You get to use it. Spend it. Pay your bills. It is what it is. But anyway, let's get back to this film. I keep going off chalk. Uh, off chalk? Off the road. I keep going off track. That was what I was trying to say. So speaking of the supporting cast, which at times feels more like an ensemble cast without how much time some of them get. Um, and, you know, they're excellent. But it's interesting that they made that choice because, you know, like I said, with previous rom-coms, it's like, it is very much about two people I'm talking about, you know, Films like Notting Hill or Sleepless in Seattle or You've Got Mail. Trying to think of other ones. Um, I would. I was going to say My Big Fat Greek Win, which I love. Love that film. Uh, I guess the family do get a lot of time, but it really is about the two of them. Um, and then some more recent ones. You know, I love you, Simon. I mean. They really just focus on Simon. Like it's, you know, it is about Simon. There isn't anything about, I mean, yeah, they touch his friends, but it's really about him. And then eventually, and if you haven't watched that film, they'll go and ruin it. Because it is, they actually try and pull curveballs at you towards the end. But anyway. But with this, it's like, yeah, we're, you know, Demi was the star, you know, and what have you, and the person that she marries at the start is in a lot of it, but then Jeff Daniels gets a lot of time. Frances McDormand doesn't get as much time as I thought she was going to get, but she does get more time than, you know, probably in other films she would have got, considering what role she's playing. Um, Mary Steenburgen gets a hell of a lot of time, and... and... You know, I would have to actually do a, a separate episode to this one to speak about all of them individually. So I'm just going to focus on two and a special mention at the end for another. So Mary Steenburgen, as I said, has a ton of time in this. And she is excellent. Um, anything I've ever seen her in, never have a bad word to say about her. Um, in this, she's excellent as a, like a dowdy church choir leader who wants to be free of anxiety and fall in love with someone who is actually available. Uh, and I will say, actually, that there's a, there's a great... There's a... Oh, no, actually, you know what? I'm going to talk about it earlier when I talk about the best scene, so I'm not going to ruin that, but... And... She's extremely sweet and naive, yet impulsive and daft in all the right moments. Like, she really plays it to a T. And she sings. She actually sings. 
I actually mean that. I really mean that. She actually sings. It's not her being overdubbed at the top, which is what I thought. But I actually watched the credits the full way through because there's a big thing to do with music in this. Like a really heavily centered thing to do with music. And I need to make sure that I get the artist's name who they mention a lot. But yeah, she actually sings. She does actually sing. And, you know, fair play. She actually has a really nice voice. I didn't realize that she actually is listed as a singer as well as an actor. So, like on um, IMDb and on Wikipedia and that. So, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen her sing and other things. Um, I don't think I have. But, uh, hold on, I'm just trying to find out if I can find... If I can find a mu musician. Yeah, and it also has its own... Oh no, I'll mention that at the end. Sorry, I'm trying to struggle here to find a camera because I, I have a name in my head of the blues artist that is featured, you know, heavily in this film. I just don't want to get it wrong. I just don't want to list them wrong because, you know, because they play some of her own music in the film and oh, sorry, I've just read something that might be intriguing to add. Oh, it's not going to tell me, is it? Oh, that is so shocking. Why won't they list? That is really... That's terrible. Oh, that's terrible. Hold on. Sorry, this is taking longer than I thought it was going to take. But it's just, you know, they should just list it. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Let's see. Come on. There we go. Sorry about that. Bessie Smith. Right, so... She sings, um, well, it's funny. She makes sure she's going to sing a Bessie Smith number. I'm presuming that the, the point that she sings it, we're supposed to believe it is. But having watched the credits, there was only one film that was listed as actually being sung by Bessie Smith. And I think that is at a point when a record's being played. So I actually think that the song that Mary Steenburgen sings is one that was specifically written for her. Um, so, but she just sings, she has a great voice. Um, it's a great portrayal of her character's development. However, she does have, leading to her first performing, in this, like, uh, it's like an open mic night sort of thing. Leading up to this performance, she has the worst line of the film. So her character is really nervous because she's never done this before, because uh, she's just been in church the whole time. And she stood at the bar and is about to go on stage and sing the blues, because that's what she really wants to do, right? Um, I should say that Jeff Daniels' character is a psychiatrist, and this is what she said to him 
Um, and um, so we already know that she's wanting to do this. So it's not like a, oh, what the hell? And at this point, she turns and says, she looks towards the stage in that sort of anxiety-ridden way. And she says, I wish I was black. I'm so nervous. Yeah, it's like, I am so nervous, I wish I was black. And it's like, sorry, what? And like, this is not me crapping on Mary Steenburgen. At the end of the day, again, when you turn up for your job, sometimes there's nothing you can do. You're there for the paycheck. And maybe at the time, it seemed all right, but I just don't think it is. Because, you know, Let me put it that way. See, if you think, listen to this, well, it's it's the blues. Of course you'd say that if you're white. Then maybe you should just go away and live in a hole. There was no reason whatsoever for that. It was just so unnecessary and quite frankly, quite frankly, full of racist rhetoric. You know, I might do an episode about overarching failures of films in 91 that keep cropping up down the line. Uh, because I don't feel like I should just speak on this matter in the middle of a film review. I feel like it deserves to be... A res I just I think it deserves to be more dealt with in a more respectful manner in a separate... in its own entity, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, like, it was such, a, such an unnecessary line. Like all you had to like all you had to say was, you know, I wish the earth would swallow me up, or oh, I wish I never agreed to do this. Why am I doing this? I should have stick to church. Like even if she says that, that is funny. I should have stuck to church. And I'm not script. I'm no scriptwriter. I'm not saying that I can do a better job than. Right, I think I could have done better there. <sighs> anyway, the other actor I want to talk about is Jeff Daniels. And so, if you know Jeff Daniels, I should say, if you know Mary Steenburgen, she's been in numerous, 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 numerous films. I know her from being the mum in Step Brothers. I know. I love that film, so she's great in that. Um, but anyway, Jeff Daniels, if you know Dumb and Dumber, basically, really. Um, it's been obviously a bunch of other stuff, but Dumb and Dumber's probably the one that people most know him from. With Jim Carrey. Uh, so, yeah, he's really great in this, and this actually is going to lead into what I feel is like an untapped story arc or storyline. So, it might spoil a little bit, just to make this point, but in the film, Demi Moore's character, the Butcher's Wife. And also, I just want to have a quick... Uh, no, I'll save that to the end as well. Sorry. I keep jumping myself. So, Jeff, what was I talking about? There? Yeah, so Demi Moore's character, right? Her whole thing is that she can... You know, if she touches people's hands, she can sort of see, you know, into their life. And... You know... Like, they call her, in some things they call her clairvoyant, and in others they call her psychic, and in others they call her mystic. 
Actually, she's a combination of all three, because I feel like there's differences between all three. And again, that's for a different time to talk about the differences between them. But she basically, if she takes hold of her hand, she can see into your life, your past, your present, and your future. This is funny, because I'm watching Loki just now, and that's all about time and looking, and again, it's about past, present, future, and all that. So it's quite funny that I'm talking about this at the same time as watching that. But anyway... So, she does all that. So, the whole sort of story arc for each character is them sort of coming from a place of... And Jeff Daniels' character, sorry, on the other side, Jeff Daniels' character is a psychiatrist, right? So, his whole thing is based on science or books. As he always, in this film, they, they go, oh, you can't read everything in books. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that accent was, but anyway. Um, whereas she, Demi Moore's because there's big philosophical conversations that happen in this film. I tell you, this film has a lot more to it than meets the eye. Transformers reference there. Um, but Jeff Daniels is really excellent. Let's just get back to Jeff Daniels because otherwise I've got to talk for 300 hours about this film. So Jeff Daniels is great. He's excellent. He's playing the... At first he feels very secure in his job. Very secure in how he does things. Very secure in his way of life. The way he thinks of life. The way he understands life. The way he understands issues. Um, the way he deals with um, conflicts and that. He is very sure of himself. But then, over the course of the film, he becomes less and less sure of himself. Until the point where he's absolutely run ragged. And he doesn't know what to do with himself. And it's excellent. That's really good. As a story art, it's absolutely excellent. But, there's an issue here which is to do with this musical underlying. So we've already established that there's a big thing to do with... So the man that Demi Moore marries, George Dezunza, he is the butcher, obviously, and he is a massive fan of Bessie Smith. Then, and obviously the way I'm saying all this, I'm not trying to spoil it, but you could kind of probably see where it's going by the way I'm talking about it. Harry Steenburgen's character sings, sorry, in inverted commas, uh, sings... Sings Bessie Smith, and she really doesn't, but we get it. But basically, she sings the blues. He's a massive fan of the blues. So again, you've got these all musical influences. Then, in three separate occasions, it's clear that Jeff Daniels is a massive jazz drumming fan. There's a point where he has an argument with his girlfriend, right? Played by Margaret Cole, who's also excellent. And I will get to her and Frances McDormand's character as well. And that I probably will have to spoil. So, apologies in advance. But it's a rom-com, so you can probably see where it's going. But, Jeff Daniels and Margaret Collins have an, an argument. Margaret Collins storms off, through into another room, whams the door. Jeff Daniels then proceeds to do one of the weirdest things, but I actually, as a drummer as well, really appreciate this, as, as the, well, how do you deal with an argument after it's over and done with, and you still got pent up rage? That's right, I do a bit of jazz beat drumming. Like, he literally... He whacks on a vinyl or a CD or puts on a song and then he just jazz drums to it, looking mad as hell. <laughs> it's like, that's a great way of dealing with anger. Yeah, just jazz drum, yeah. Bugger it, do it. So anyway, but and then the two other separate occasions, he's he's clearly, you know, doing beats with like, uh, with like his pencil and he's like hitting stuff in his desk and the chair. And at one point he's literally doing it all around the office and he don't really make a big thing about it. And it's really interesting because I thought, oh, it's totally going to be that Demi Moore touches his hand and 
feel and it's like you always wanted to be a jazz drummer. You know, you always wanted to drum in a jazz band. But that never came up. It never came up. I was so shocked. Because I was like, it's right there. It's front and center. Like there, there's a bit which I'll get to, which is the best scene, where she does touch his hand and talks to him a bit more about him being a kid. But I was like, oh, but then she's gonna say, and then you wanted to be a jazz drummer. <laughs> it never happened. I was like, oh, that was such an open goal. That'd be great because every other character pretty much gets an arc where they start from somewhere where they really don't want to be and end up with a place where they really want to be or somewhere where they never thought was they could ever imagine happened and it happened. Yeah, with him. Yes, there's something major that happens, but that, the individual arc of him never really happens for him. I was a bit like, oh, that's a bit of a shame. But he's excellent at it. That's the main thing. So, there's a few last little things I want to mention. This might be a longer episode than the previous one, blooming heck. So I'll try and get him through as quickly, but, you know, understandable as possible. So location chat, yes. So I just wanted to mention, so as I said, it's North Carolina. There we go, I've got a first time. But specifically Bald Head Island. That's right, there's a place called Bald Head Island. Uh, again, I didn't look this up before, so I might just do it now. But the way they portray the two, so basically it starts with Bald Head Island and it ends in New York City. Again, I'm not going to spoil it because I was about to spoil it there, but I'm not going to. But I'm just going to look up Bald Head Island. But the way they portray the locations is really, really nice. I really like it. It's like that classic sort of film whenever they talk about, like, oh, here we go, Bald Head Island. So, right, so it's definitely North Carolina. I wasn't very sure. Um, oh, it's historically Smith Island. It's a village located on the east side of the Cape Fear River in Brunswick County. Right, now I just want to look up something else because I might have to spoil... I might have to spoil a little bit because there is a bit where someone takes a boat and presumably they take it from New York City and they literally get there in no time at all. And it's mad. I just want to see what the distance is between Baldhead Island and New York City. Oh, see, that's if I'm walking. It's 219 hours if you're walking. What if you're driving? 10 hours. Okay, so there's a point where someone takes a boat from clearly from New York City to Baldhead Island. And they obviously arrive at the same night. So, but this is telling me... <laughs> This is telling me that it would be 11 to 10 hours. 11 to 10 hours. Driving. Who knows what it's going to be like on a little paddling boat. Oh, that's bad. Like, I get what they were trying to do. It was supposed to be super romantic and everything. But I'm like, no. <laughs> no. I, I immediately was like, no, he didn't just do that. You can piece together what's happening. I'm trying not to spoil it, but... But the way they portrayed the location was really nice. The ball hand chat is literally just where she used to live with her grandma. Well, has one line in the film. No, actually, she has two, three lines, but she has one scene, basically. And it's like, you know, it's a very mystical place, and there's narration over the top from down at the start. I also like the title design, actually, as well. I just wanted to point that out as well. But um, 
And in New York City, it's literally just of a neighborhood. It's literally of a block, really. There's only one time it kind of steps outside that block. But it's like, it's like two blocks, maybe, max, is where they're situated. And it's great. I actually really like that. I like when it's close-knit. Everyone sort of lives and works near each other. Um, it's like that sort of classic sort of like a Bronx Tale type chat where it's all, you know, it's really set in this one neighborhood and that's it. We're not worried about the city at large. Like you see with some films and they'll do like the outside shots in New York City to make it be like, this is big deal. This is all about, all about NYC. It's like, no, just tell me about the place, you know, just a little pocket of it. But they're all, they're all existing. Within. So I really like that. Um... So let's t talk about Margaret Collin and Frances McDormand. And this is going to be a spoiler. So if you don't want a spoiler, skip the next two, three minutes. And again, apologies for it being a long-ass episode. So basically, long story short, Margaret Collin um, is Jeff Daniel's girlfriend. And Frances McDormand is their best friend. Or specifically, Jeff Daniel's best friend, more so. Long story short, Frances McDormand and Margaret Collin end up together. Yes, they end up as a couple. Now, there's three times, two, three times, I think. No, it's twice. There's, well, there's three times where they're technically together, but it's twice that they're together officially as a couple. And I have to say, I kind of, I kind of um, read it right from, there was a point where I'm like, yeah, it'll be them too. That'll be it. They'll end up together. There's reason why I say that. You watch the film, you'll get it. However, the two points where they get around, like, why are they not letting them kiss? Because I would wonder, I was like, okay, so 91, was there many films going about that had not even, not, like, not even a central gay character, but a supporting gay character? Now, in the films that I've looked up to do for 91, the short answer is no, the long answer is I haven't looked at every single film and figured that out yet. But watching this, I was like, they're not gonna they're not gonna let them show any intimacy. Barring touching hands and having a little bit of a laugh, which is literally what happened. So it is it was a bit of a disappointment. Actually, not even a bit. It's actually quite a large disappointment for me. Like you could have really taken an opportunity there, just be like it's just one kiss. That's it. That's all you ask for. Like, they're literally stood in the doorway at one point. In the two instances. One of them is they're stood in the doorway. One in a bathrobe and the other one in lingerie. It's like a, a slip, I think. And it's like, not even there. She could have just it pecked her on the cheek. Like, you couldn't even give us that. Because all I'm looking at is two women who just happen to be sharing a house. Or two women who just happen to be sitting at a bar. Great, you know. And I, I'm, I get it, not everyone's about public affection and that, but we're talking about, uh, what, an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minute film. You know, all you need is one one little peck and that's it. I mean, all the heteronormative, heterosexual couples seem to be getting on absolutely, like, houses on fire. Why can't they? And I get it, every relationship's different, but I just thought it was a little bit of a letdown and a bit of a disappointment. Whew, blood my neck. And I want my special mention to go to Miriam Margulies. Now, if you don't know who this woman is, I was actually really, I was totally taken aback when I saw her on screen. I was like, oh my God, this is her. So if you don't, if you might know her from the Harry Potter films, she wasn't that. Um, she's a very well-respected um, 
English theatre actor. But I know her. I mean, aside from the Harry Potter stuff, what I really know her is for being on the chat show circuit, specifically the Graham Norton show. I might link some of the links to clips with her because she is a riot. She doesn't care. You know, she really doesn't care. She just says what she says. Um, and I mean that not in a, not in a, oh, what's close to the bone type humour, which could be seen as being disrespectful. No, not at all. I just mean that she don't really give two Fs, really. Um, she's just living her life, put it that way. And I think she's excellent. She's, you can tell she's an absolute riot. So I'll put them in the description so you can have a look. Um, but yeah, so all in all, you know, I actually enjoyed this film for what it was. You know, a wee self-contained, magical, schmaltzy rom-com. A few things take away from the overall sweetness and enjoyability of the film, as I mentioned. But if you want a bit of a too magical, sugary enjoyment, this is for you. So, best line. So, it was actually hard for getting the best line out of this. And this is not necessarily... It's funny, I feel like with a lot of these best lines... When people say that, it's like, and then someone tells you, like, well, that's not that funny. It's like, well, you need to watch the film. It's like, well, yeah, but you just told me it's the best line. So if you're telling me the best line and I'm not enjoying it, how am I going to enjoy the film? So let me put it this way. It's the best line for this, of what happens in the scene. <laughs> so um, basically, somebody gives someone else a gift. And you know, it's beautifully wrapped and everything. Well, you presume, actually, that that's... That's who they're supposed to be giving the gift to. And so, um, you know, they open it up and the line is, well, there's, a, there's like a lot of silence, which is great. It uh, really adds to it. There's a lot of silence. And it's simply, it gets said, I told. I love it. And that's it. <laughs> I think it's great. It's really good. It's a really good scene. Um, but the line makes it because it's kind of like, well, how would you react to that? But anyway. That's not going to make any sense to anybody. Um, best scene. So I'll try and finish this up as quickly as I can. So the best scene is a roller skate scene between Jeff Daniels and Demi Moore. And basically throughout the whole, well, not like the first part is the sort of neighborhood getting introduced, but then the three quarters of the film is, just, again, so you have the, a big musical element of kind of, I would say, Half of it's tapped, half of it is untapped with the Jeff Daniels chat. But then there's this other overarching, massive philosophical conversation that happens between Jeff Daniels' um, books, science, psychiatry, psychology, you know, the, that's the way of doing things. And then there's the other side of things with Demi Moore, which has been a clairvoyant, a psychic, a mystic, believing in... Powers that are beyond our own. And that there are very few people who have these powers that are beyond the human imagination. Let's put it that way. And, it's, and they're button heads. And it's like, it's really good. It's really great. And I actually, I know I say this about every other film I watch, but I think this would be really great as a miniseries or like a, or like, like a three season, 10 episode run. Where, yeah, okay, at the end of the day, because if you look at TV shows now that are doing sort of romantic comedy vibes, they're doing, taking it in such different ways. And there's really some really great um, 
female identifying uh, set sort of short series that are going on on TV right now, that I think this would be perfect for that. This idea that there's this big, you know, because there's a one point where Demi Moore talks about something that was this idea of like two halves and everything. And Jeff Dunn was like, well, yeah, well, Plato wrote that. And then there's a callback to it at the end, which is just excellent. And again, it's this idea. It's like, well, you know, really, at the end of the day, neither are right and neither are wrong. Hey-ho. I thought that was a really... But the roller skate scene is really excellent because she's just skating around him. Like, actually physically skating around him. And he's just trying to make no sense, as well as not making sense what she's saying, and she being like, not making sense what he's saying. And scene. Let's talk numbers and then we'll pack this baby up because all my days we're going to be nearly an hour again. Who knew? So stars wise, I gave it 3.75 star out of 5 stars. Sorry, I I gave it 3.75 stars out of 5. Because like I said, I really did enjoy it, but I did think that the elements I've talked about took away from it and it just wasn't as great as it could be. And I think there were some things that were just left out. And obviously, like, the line that gets said, I feel that really takes away from the scene and everything. So, it's what it is. Um, Ratings-wise, it's all all over the chart. I don't know if there's been one that's been all over the chart as much as this. So, IMDb, 5.4 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes, 25%. But then you've got... Amazon users, 4.6 out of 5. And then Google users, 84% liked it. So I don't, it, either that is just, you know, who the, oh, I don't know. But that's very, like, two sides of one coin. Do you know what I mean? Like, as, as far away from each other as possible. Now, I couldn't get the budget, but I'm pretty sure that it was a pretty much a dud. But the box office was 9.6 million, which is rough. Considering that Demi Moore had been in Ghost, and that made a ton of money. So, but it is what it is. And I think I'll have to do some housekeeping to do this, because I did see some things as I was trying to find, like, Bessie Smith's name and that to do with the film. So, that'll be for the next episode. But anyway, one more in the bag. Thanks again for listening to uh, Extra Extended Episodes. It's just, it's just what happens. It depends on the film. It depends what mood I'm in. It depends on the day. It depends on everything. The weather, you know, the way the carpet feels. I don't know. Um, but like I said, thanks again for listening. And no matter what the length of the episodes are. And next up, we're going to be reviewing our first Hindi language and Bollywood film. And I hope I say this right. I might absolutely ruin it. Risada is what I want to say. So, until then, stay safe. Until next time, cheerio. Thanks for listening to Films of 1991. Come back again.